Hello, uh, sadly a recording fell on Sunday, it's Monday morning. Uh, we were looking at 1 Peter 2, verse 11 to 25, as we were finishing off our series entitled Living in the Life of the Cross. And the topic this time was suffering. Now one of the books that's missing from my bookshelf, and as far as I can see missing from the market of Christian books, is the biography of the normal Christian. You know, just the everyday living type stuff. Monday, went to the supermarket, left my wallet at home. Tuesday, the kids were a nightmare again. Uh, shouted at them, felt guilty. Wednesday, I tried to talk to my neighbour about Jesus, but I think I fluffed it. The biography of normal stuff. Because, of course, we love to read books of the gifted and the blessed those whom God has used in mighty ways, that that's often why we buy a biography. It's a chance to, to peek through a window into their lives. The famous preachers, the famous theologians, those who have transformed society. And yet they are abnormal. Sorry to break it to you so publicly, but it's pretty unlikely that you will be like them. There comes a time when that hits home for each of us, when, when youthful, unrealistic ambition dies. Probably sometime around a midlife moment. I remember it fairly well in my mid-twenties when it hit home hard that I wouldn't play football for a living, obviously. Although my wife does still say I could probably play for the Oxford United team. But again, it's partly due to our love of celebrity, I think. We we follow the celebrity pastor, those whom everyone looks to. We listen to their podcasts and read their books, and maybe even we want to be like them, or at least we want to be in their church. If I'm honest, it's far too easy for me to play the comparison game with those whom I uh, studied at theological college with, who made it first onto the, the main stage at New World Alive, who was published first. Who leads the biggest church? And who would be the first person to have a biography written about them? But as someone helpfully made the point to me last week, 99.99999% of Christians down the ages have been unknowns. Well, at least to us, not to the Lord, but we wouldn't know their name. There would never be a biography written about them. We wouldn't really know very much about them. But you know, that's okay. In fact, it's incredibly liberating and empowering because God uses small things to change the world. He uses everyday people in their everyday lives living in the light of the cross. He uses people like us. That seems to be what 1 Peter is all about. Today we're in chapter 2, verse 11. Uh, but the story so far in Peter is that God's people have this kind of a twin identity. It's there in 1 verse 1. Actually, we looked at it on Friday night a few weeks ago with uh, the youth with FNC. And what we saw then was that Christians were scattered. They're not at home. Life is hard for the Christians of that time. It was probably written around the time of Nero. And he was particularly unpleasant to God's people. He persecuted them. He He made them suffer and he killed them because of their faith. God's people are a scattered people. And yet despite that, Peter says God's people are special. 
special because, again, it's in 1 verse 1, they are elect, they are chosen and kept by God. Actually, in 1 verse 2, all of the Trinity, all of God, Father, Spirit, Son, at work to, to choose and to keep his people safe for him. Scattered, yeah, life is really hard, but special. And then when we reach 2 verse 11, it's something of a change in direction for us. He told them who they are and broadly how they're to live, but now he really gives it some colour. And in 11 verse 20, our first point, he says, live a life that changes the world. Verse 11 to verse 20, live a life that changes the world. So in the midst of the daily nitty-gritty hardship for being a Christian, live a good life, and God will use that. He writes, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds glorify God on the day he visits us. And what does that good life look like? Well, have a look. See, Nathan says a negative, and there's a positive there in verse 11 and verse 12. The negative is, you see, is to abstain from sinful desires. I take it it's steering clear of those things that make it hard to be a Christian, that make the battle harder to fight and to win. Abstain from sinful desires. And as well as that, there's a positive too. In verse 12, you see, we're living the good life. We're doing good deeds, verse 12. So I wonder, how do you think God might make an impact in your workplace? Or in your sports club? Or in your neighbourhood? Or in your course? Or in your family? How might he make inroads? Well, it's probably not through the big advertising campaigns. It's probably not the the huge events and the big-name speakers. He he can use them, but but usually it's just normal Christians living normal lives. Live live a good life, because you living that way on a Monday shows your colleagues, your neighbours, your family, your friends what God is like. So that they, they worship him, they glorify him. That is, I think they become Christians. I'm not sure it's just living. I think Peter assumes that we're talking to them about the gospel as well to explain why we're living differently. You get that in chapter 3. You get it in 3 verse 13 and onwards. He says, well, who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Live a good life. People will ask you why. And you will answer. Now I hope our question is, what is this good life like? What does it look like? What does it mean for me on a Monday? Well, back in chapter 2 again, and just glance at verse 13 to verse 20. 
And it turns out that a life that will change the world is, you ready? The life of submission to everybody. Not very exciting, is it really? And we're, we're already looking for the loopholes. Verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human. Authority is not actually there in the Greek. Peter says, submit to those around you, to those above you, to the emperor, to Nero. Can you hear the jaws? Their jaws drop as the Christians receive this. We submit to Nero, but he persecutes us, he kills us. Peter says, the normal behaviour for the Christian is submission. In verse 15, although mud is being slung at the Christians, Peter longs for that mud not to stick. They might accuse you of doing wrong, but you make sure you're clean. Silence their foolish talk by, by submitting, not just to the emperor, but also to his delegated authorities, to, to governors there in verse 14. I, I take it for us, that's, that's submit to traffic wardens. That's submit to the inland revenue. That's submit to copyright laws, to traffic laws. You drivers, you, you cyclists, as we're in Oxford. So, so the teachers and lecturers over you. But to all the delegated authorities from the emperor, you are to submit. But why do this? Why? Well, because this silences people. Because they're looking for a reason to ignore what you say, to, to discount your message, to ignore the gospel. But don't give them a reason to. Submit. And so do you see how you behave? Your, your submission is a massive part of your witness. If you're like me at all, you find it easy to divorce law-keeping from being a Christian. So I'll keep the law, of course I will, but that's what I'm supposed to do. And yet what Peter says is, obeying the rules that God has put in my life is at the heart of my witness. It's striking, isn't it? I will obey and submit to the law of the land, not for morality's sake, but for the Lord's sake. And people are watching you. But not just as you, but also how you treat everyone. Have a look at verse 16 and 7. He writes, as free people, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honour the emperor. From the driver in front, who, who doesn't bother signalling, to the ticket inspector, from the homeless man on the street, to the CEO, from your lecturer, your teacher, to your students. Respect them. Because that's the kind of life that God uses to change the world. Verse 13, then, submit yourself to every human authority for the Lord's sake. And then verse 18, do you see, there there's another submit. He says, submit to your masters, to your employers again. In fact, we saw it a couple of weeks ago in Colossians 3. Remember, we probably shouldn't associate slaves 
in their time with the 18th and 19th century slaves in America. For them, slaves, it seems, at least potentially, had a much higher status in society, in the family. They were a part of the family, even. They even had slaves under them. But, but what about if your master is a bad one? You know, the, the kind of boss whom you can never quite please, you can never quite do enough. Maybe he, he walks all over you. What, what do we do then? Well, well, listen again to Peter. Just to warn you, these, these verses probably need a bit of a health warning. Verse 18. He writes, In reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. But it's commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they're conscious of God. But, but how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and enduring it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. Now Peter's not talking about suffering for bad behaviour. Anyone can do that. Anyone can suffer for doing wrong. You can rub people up the wrong way. You can be dishonest, you can break the rules, and you can receive the consequences for that. Peter is talking about suffering for doing good, that is, doing what is right in the Lord's eyes. Maybe he's talking about being overlooked again and again and again for promotion because you're not prepared to lie. Maybe he's talking about being sidelined in the office because, well, because you're honest about your mistakes rather than seeking to to delegate those mistakes down the chain to others, like everyone else does. Perhaps it's not being drunk. Perhaps it's not being economical with the truth. Perhaps it's just not getting involved in the office gossip or, or the culture of complaining. He's talking about suffering for doing good. But our our immediate reaction when you're in the thick of it, when you're at the hands of this kind of a boss, you think, well, don't I fight against the injustice? Don't I fight for my rights? Because, of course, we look out and we live in a culture hung up on our rights. We stand on what we deserve. And we look in. And we feel the pride of our hearts. That means that we just don't like being trampled on. And yet from this passage here, it seems we're to have a very different perspective, a, a very challenging perspective. The fact that our pride takes a battering, it doesn't matter. Our focus is elsewhere. And yet what sits on top to be, if you're anything like me, are the nagging questions, the, the but what abouts? various scenarios in our mind that we're constructing. What about if someone is being badly abused in some way? What if there's racial abuse or sexual abuse or physical abuse or harassment? It's a complicated one. I think my perspective on it is this, that if, if the state in which we live has provided a way out from a particular form of abuse, well then it's not wrong for us to take it. These verses aren't saying we're to be doormats as Christians. They're not saying that the Christian thing to do is always just to press on and take it. No, it's perfectly Christian to take legal action and defend the freedom that we've been given. 
the emperor has set up a system to protect his people, well, it's okay to use that system. And I think there are some, but what about in the Bible, even if the state, the emperor, asks you to disobey God? You remember Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, not bowing to the king, to, to the idol that he constructs. And then later on, not stopping praying to God. They do not submit. They do serve God, and they are held up as examples. But the weight of the passage is to submit. These are the exceptions rather than the rules. So Peter firstly says, then, first point, remember verse 11 to 20, live a life that changes the world. And let's feel the force of that together, of what Peter is saying. Second point, live a life modelled on the cross. Verse 21 to 25. I think if we ask the question, how? How... How am I actually to do this on a Monday? Well, if you've been around at all for for any of the sermons in the series, you won't be surprised to hear the answer is, look to Jesus. We saw it last week in 2 Corinthians 8, and in the kids' talk this morning. You want to be generous? Well, look to the generous God who's given so much to you. Week before in Colossians 3, you want to work well? Or remember Jesus is your boss. Before that, Philippians 2, you want to be humble and unified. Well, look to Jesus, who made himself nothing. Have the same mindset as he has. Before that, Demi the First, Luke 9, you want to be a disciple? Well, look to the Jesus who goes before you to the cross. Because the temptation is to, to look in and just to try a bit harder and to work more and to beat ourselves up, and yet, Again and again and again, the biblical authors say, keep your eyes fixed on him. But we forget that so easily. When we look at our situation, especially if it's like Peter, tough to be a Christian, and we're paralysed by what we're going to do. How how are we going to cope? Our situation overshadows everything. And yet we're to look to Jesus. There was a Scottish pastor from the 1800s called Robert Murray McShane. And he famously said, for every look at self, take ten looks at Christ. Live near to Jesus and all things will appear little to you in comparison with eternal realities. How many millions of dazzling pearls and gems are at this moment hidden in the deep recesses of the ocean caves? Likewise, unfathomable oceans of grace are in Christ for you. Dive and dive again. You will never come to the bottom of these depths. Look to Jesus. Now let me read verse 21 to 25 again for us. And I want you to notice how the cross both models and empowers us to live a life that changes the world. So verse 21. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. 
By his wounds you've been healed. You were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. There's a lot of talk about uh, wanting to discern what our calling in life is, wanting to discern what God wants of us. Well, in part, verse 21 tells you, I'm called to unjust suffering. There's a, there's a fridge magnet for you. Follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Live out the example of Jesus. And the word used there, the example word, is an interesting one. It's the same word used for tracing. So, to cast your minds back to the primary school classroom and you're learning how to write. And your teachers put dots to help you do the letters. And you join them up. And there you have letter A, letter B, right the way through. Or teachers, you're now teaching the little lads how to write. And you are there busy making letters out of dots so that they can trace over them and learn to write letters. They follow your example. And so we follow the example of Jesus. We follow in his footsteps. Suffering doesn't come as we sometimes think when God's forgotten us, or or as if he's even punishing us for something. But you see, suffering unjustly stands right at the centre of the normal Christian life. And and as we do, we're to follow his example. In both the way that he suffered and in how we respond to that suffering too. They hurled their insults at him. He, he didn't respond in kind. He didn't defend his honour. So there's a sense in which the question, uh, the what would Jesus do question, helps us here. You know the little bracelet thing? I can't say I'm always a great fan of them, to be honest. But here, in the midst of unjust suffering, it's a great question to ask. What would Jesus do? That's an even better question to get straight in our minds. What did Jesus do? Look to Christ and copy his example. Live a life modelled on the cross. It might be that you're here and the question that's popped to the surface is, but but he can't have suffered that much. He was God, wasn't he? It's a question I've heard before. It wasn't Jesus just a kind of Superman figure. The story of the Bible is clear that he took on human flesh. And in so doing, he suffered as we do. He had a human body with a human mind and human emotions. And yet he was without sin. And as they threatened him and spat at him and hurled their insults at him, he could have finished them off with a word. But he chose to take it. And as they stripped him and they nailed him to the cross, he could have ended it all. But he chose to take it. Not at all because he didn't care about justice. But because, you see, verse 23, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And why? Why do that? Well, verse 24 and 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. 
By his wounds you've been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Do you see, he dies, bearing upon himself the weight of God's right and just anger against our sins. We were like sheep going astray. We'd wandered off doing what we wanted to do, being in charge of our own lives. And yet now we're brought back to him. Why? So that we might die to sins. We might live a life of righteousness. We might live a a good life that changes the world. How do we do that? By living a life that's modelled on the cross. Let's pray. Our Father, we find these verses very challenging, very difficult to put into practice. They highlight lots of our sin and our pride, our unwillingness to suffer. And so we thank you that you use everyday people like us, living everyday lives, we live in the light of the cross. Help us please to, to live submissive lives that people notice, that people ask us about. Help us to, to live a life that's modelled on the cross. Thank you that we have a Saviour who goes before us, who has done that. Please keep our eyes fixed on him. And in his name we pray. Amen.